Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper Podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Grace Atwood. And today we're talking about money. Money. This is a juicy one, kind of. Yeah. No, it's going to be. It's going to be a juicy one. We've got some reader horror stories. I was trying to think about... Um, you pause, so I'm like, well, oh, maybe it won't be a juicy. No, one. I was trying to think of something to say. It was going to be like, give me some money. I don't know. <laughs> I have a lot to say, but I don't know if I'm very funny today. Oh, I'm feeling very funny, so I'll be funny enough for both of us. Okay, sounds good. Which is crazy because you're the funny one out of the two of us. Well, today's your day. Today's my Let's day. Let's get started. Be funny, Grace. What's your high? My high is I'm feeling healthier. This isn't very funny. Um, I have been a smoothie monster. I've been making like a big spinach and fruit and yogurt smoothie every morning, which is really good. Oh, I've been seeing that on Instagram. Yeah, I'm a, I'm now a wellness influencer. So now question for you. Do you just do fruit and vegetables or do you do like a protein powder or something to keep you fuller? I put oat milk in it and a little bit of Greek yogurt and a little bit of chia seeds. Oh, okay. So that's like a substantial yeah, smoothie. It's substantial. I don't I have protein powder. I have this vanilla one, but it's really artificial tasting. Yeah, I don't like protein powder either. So that's kind of I went through a real big smoothie phase and I'm kind of on the fence between like team smoothie and not team smoothie because it's yeah. like it doesn't keep me full long enough usually. Yeah, I'm like starving by lunch. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe I should put some protein in it or more chia seeds. Oh my god, can I tell you a quick or flax seeds? Funny story. Yes. So my friend Elizabeth used to make herself a smoothie every morning, and it was her favorite thing, she, always, every day. Okay. And um, her now fiance, her boyfriend, was like, Elizabeth, like, how many calories do you think are in that? And so she did the math, and she was eating this smoothie that was like 1,300 calories by accident. Like, she, she didn't do the math, and she didn't realize. What was in there? It was like... Was it like bananas and peanut butter? It was bananas. It was half an avocado. It was like... Banana and avocado? Uh-huh. And one peanut creamy. butter. Oh, God. And some kind of like milk or, or milk yeah. something. And she like did the math and it was so... Oh, my It God. had so many calories. And she was like, oh, wow. This is like... I mean, she wasn't doing yeah. it to lose weight, but she was like, oh, wow. Like, yeah. didn't realize this. It's funny because I think that smoothies can be like a ton of calories. Like my favorite, um, my old trainer used to have me have this as lunch or breakfast after a workout was the peanut butter split from Juice Generation, but it's got like 700 calories in it. Yeah. It's so good. It's like dessert because she had me on this whole meal plan. This was years ago when I was more fit. I don't find having a smoothie for a meal outside of breakfast to be satisfying. I need to choose something. Yeah, I, I I actually don't mind it. I like it because I, I can take my time with it and like sip it and then put it back down and sip it some more. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. And then uh, we're recording in advance, but I will have just been on a yoga retreat. Um, How do you think future Grace is doing? I think I'm gonna doing. probably stressed because I'll have taken a week off, but I'm also just so excited. It's, I, I talked about this. I raved about it last week, so I, I'll shut up. But Christopher Golden, he is my yoga angel. I love him so much. I'm so excited for you. Yeah. What about you? So I'm headed to London this week. When this episode drops, I will have just gotten there. I'm so so, excited. I'm so jealous. Well, so this summer I have so much travel happening, but I'm kind of not in control of any of it. So we had the tour for the podcast, which was a blast. I have a ton of bachelorettes and weddings this summer, and I'm just all over the place. And I, I really wanted to take a trip for me 
Yeah. So my friend Rachel is in London. She's living there for three months. She's like my most free-spirited friend. She was the one who lived in Mexico Mexico City, and now she's living in London. So I've, I've been I've been thinking that I really wanted to go visit her while she was there. It's a free place to stay. So finally, I was like, screw it. Yeah. So I bought a plane ticket. It was expensive. But I'm excited. I haven't been to London also in like six years. I love it there. I love all the art museums and the galleries there. I'm excited. I don't know what we're going to do. The only firm plan we have is we have tickets to this musical about Henry VIII's wives. Oh, it looks so good. It looks really funny. And the thing that sold me was that RuPaul gave it a good review. And I was like, I'm in. What's it called again? Do you remember? I can't remember. I feel like I have it screenshotted on my phone somewhere because I was like, I want to go to that. So I'm very excited to go to London. Fun. Yeah. But then the flip side of that is my low. Well, I have two lows. The first is that I have really bad period cramps today, Ooh. and I didn't know that I was getting them. And like, I will admit, I I worked from bed for most of the afternoon. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, it's not feeling great. Second is that I booked a red eye to London, and I'm kind of dreading it. It's kind of the best way to get there, though. It is. It doesn't make. It s- doesn't make. It doesn't make any sense with the time difference to fly during the day. So I I booked a red eye, and I don't sleep on planes, and. I mean, do you need drugs? Do you want me to give you drugs? No, I don't like taking drugs because I am really sensitive to any kind of sleeping pill type thing. So if I take NyQuil, I'm out for like 14 hours. Oh, wow. Okay. So so that's the thing is it's like. What about one of Gwyneth's sleep chews? They taste like chocolate mint and they're pretty light. I mean, maybe. Okay, I would try that. You could try one like this weekend and then see how you like it. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, because that's the thing is like I can't take a sleeping pill. I guess if I was going to Asia or something and I had a ton of time to sleep because otherwise I'll the flight's not long enough. I'll wake up and be dead still. I take like one third of an Ambien. Like mm. a bottle of Ambien will last me a year because I take just like little pieces of it if I can't sleep because I have bad sleeping issues. I don't know. I don't know if that's for me. I don't want to experiment with it. But I'm such a bad plane sleeper. The last time – I never sleep on planes. And I, I usually in the U.S. if I'm flying to the West Coast, I, I don't take a red eye. Yeah. But this seemed unavoidable. The last time I did it was when we went to Morocco last year. And I didn't sleep at all. And I had the whole row to myself so I could lay down. Ugh. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm like preemptively dreading that. But, I mean, I would say I want people's tips. But I'll already be in London by the time this is live. So, Either it went well or it didn't. It'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. So we have... Wait, you didn't ask me my low. Oh, it says you have no low. Yeah, I don't have one. But I didn't get to say that. I don't have a low right now. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. (laughs) Should I tell them the secret? What's the secret? We recorded three times this week, so you've already gotten your your lows out. So Becca and I have opposite travel schedules. That's my low is not getting to see much of Becca. Like I go on my yoga retreat and back for one day. Becca goes to London. Then um, she's back for like three days. And then I go to Cape Cod with my family. So we're not seeing much of each other this summer. And I don't know how I'm going to cope. It'll be fine. We can FaceTime. Yes. It'll give you time to miss me. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. It will. I'm getting I'm getting very nervous. It'll be okay. 
It'll be okay. And we have podcast recording plans, so there's not even going to be a lapse in episodes. Exactly. We'll always make sure we have a new episode for you every Wednesday. Maybe not every Wednesday for life. Like, we're going to take Christmas off. Are we? I don't know. Anyway. I don't know. Like, you know, Girls Gotta Eat did an episode on Christmas Eve. I don't know what we're going to do. Yeah, we'll see. We took we took six weeks off over the holidays last year, but we weren't very serious about the podcast yet. Also, you were a nightmare last holiday. Holiday grace is a nightmare. Anyway, I want to have our desperation minute so we can get into this topic. Yes. So, guys, if you like this podcast, you know what you can do? Leave us a review. Tell all your friends. All of them. Put us on your Instagram story. Do all the things. Yeah, do all of that. Just leave a nice review. Someone today wrote, Becca has the voice of an angel. Grace is obnoxious and pretentious. Oh, my God. No, annoying and pretentious. I was like, my skin is getting thicker, though. I feel like I'm just, I see them and I'm like, I guess I'm not for everyone. Eh, That's okay. You're an acquired taste. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, So leave us a nice review. Tell all your friends. It helps us grow. It's the one thing you can do for us to give back. Yes, do it. Now, let's talk about money. Yes. So... I've been wanting to do this episode for a while. We're going to talk about salaries and negotiating. And it's really crazy because a couple of weeks ago, as we were preparing to record this episode, I put something up on my story and asking for questions and I had a poll and and kind of just, I don't know. And um, I was really surprised because I thought people would not really be into the topic because I feel like summer is kind of a lazy time. But I guess it does make sense because it's also when a lot of people get their half yearly reviews. Yeah. So people are so into this topic. And I was like, oh, wow. I thought everyone was just coasting. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited. I have a lot to say about this. I have some feelings. I do too. So I want to give you a few caveats before we get into this. We are not professionals. Oh, Maybe you're going to be a phone sex professional. Mm-hmm. What was that voice? It's my new voice. Okay. Well, okay. So first, we can only speak from our own experience. We don't have a guest. We're not HR experts. It's just us. And and so we can speak from our own experience negotiating salaries. And then also, we've both hired people. So we've been on the other side of the table, too. Yes. So we're not experts, but we have some stories to share. We've got some stuff to say. And then the second thing is we got a lot of people asking us questions that were very specific and we have no expertise in. So, for instance, somebody wanted to know things about negotiating if you're in a union. And some people ask questions about nonprofits. And I've never been in either of those instances. So I guess like noted for the future if we have a relevant guest, but um, have no idea. Yeah. So we can't answer those. Sorry. But best of luck to you. Hopefully you'll take away something anyway. Yes. Now, Becca, tell us. Okay. Why is negotiating your salary so important? Okay. I really nerded out and I did some research. I know. I'm looking at – Becca wrote the outline for this and it's like a book report. Well, I I nerded out and I wanted to get some statistics because I didn't want anyone to think that this wasn't well-researched. So I love all this research. I learned a lot reading the outline. Oh, good. Oh, good. Okay. Mm -hmm. So – I think the one we all know is that according to the Bureau, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, women make 78 cents to the man's dollar among full-time workers. So we hear that one all the time. That's even worse with people of color. Absolutely. Absolutely. But what that doesn't take into account is people having the same job. So in general, uh, m- 
men over index in higher paying jobs. So when you compare equally qualified people doing the same job, most estimates by labor economists put the wage gap at 10 to 20%. So slightly narrower, but it still exists. It's not just that like women are teachers and men are CEOs and that's why there's a wage gap. (laughs) Yeah. Like even in similar roles, like men are paid more. So one theory that has been pretty prevalent kind of over the last 15 to 20 years is that um, women don't negotiate their salaries or they don't negotiate as aggressively as men. And so that's one reason why the pay gap exists, especially as people get further in their career, because women miss out on that cumulative negotiated extra salary. Yeah. But this is what I found super interesting. So there was an HBR study, Harvard Business Review, that found that women ask for raises just as often as men, but men are more likely to be successful at getting a raise. So women who asked, is that interesting? Yeah. So women who asked obtained a raise 15% of the time, while men obtained a pay increase 20% of the time. Do you think that's due to mediocre white man confidence? I mean, could be. I don't know. I just like saying that expression. And this doesn't take into account, this is about salary raises. This isn't about negotiating a starting salary. So I don't know how that plays a factor as well. But I thought that was very interesting. And I know from experience talking to my friends in real life and also over the past week or so talking to people on Instagram that I think a lot of people feel gun shy when it comes to negotiating their salary. And I want everyone to walk away from this episode with a big set of swinging balls and like, go get a raise. Yeah. Go get your money, girls. Yeah. Or boys, if we have any that listen. Boys, you're fine. Yeah. You're probably fine. You're fine. Yeah. So I just, I have a lot of thoughts here. And I think it's just such an important topic to talk about because I wish I could go back in time and tell past Becca, like, if anyone ever offers you a sum of money, ask for more. Yeah. I wish I knew that too. Cause I, Honestly, I think back on previous salaries and I was like, oh, wow, that's so much money. Cool. Like, I'll take it. I know. Totally. Like, you were like, oh, I just I'm grateful to have the job. Like, I yeah. I need a new job. So I'm not in a position to negotiate. And it's like, of yeah. course you are. Yeah. Of course you are. So we're going to get into it. Mm-hmm. I have, as Grace mentioned, a lot of bullet points to talk about. Yes. A lot to go through. Yeah. So I was thinking, Grace, maybe we start... And can you give some context kind of on your career and your like history and then also kind of where you also started being a hiring manager who was on the other side of the equation as well? Yes. I think we're going to get like deep. We were talking about this before. You want like dollar amounts. You want – I don't care. I'll share. I kind of thought about it. And when you said it before, I was like, yeah, fuck it. I don't care. I don't care. Like (laughs) – Let's do this. Grace, yeah. tell me how much money you've made at every job you've had. Okay. <laughs> mine is like, if we put... It's really actually quite interesting. If we put mine on a graph, it would just be like all these weird spikes and mine valleys too. and spikes and valleys. Mine too. Okay, let's do it. I'm curious. We, we have wine, so it's fine. It's great. Let's do it. Okay. So my first job, I just want to start, I was an intern in the buying office for Filene's Department Stores, which is now part of Macy's. And for that internship, I was paid $13 an hour. But at the end of the summer, I got a job offer. 
And so I was given a a $2,500 signing bonus and my first salary was $40,000, which for living in Boston, like, is is decent. Like, yeah. I was pretty excited. My rent was only $625. So we I made it work and I always felt, like, comfortable on that. I was also 22, so I didn't really, like, shop a lot or, like, want for really expensive things just yet. <laughs> yeah, you shopped a lot at Forever 21. I did. I loved, I loved Forever 21. It was like, it's the weekend's coming. Got to get an outfit. Yeah, time for a going out top. Yep. <laughs> Going to spend $30 yep. for five. <laughs> so that was my first job. Everyone got the same salary. Like, we were all given the same salary. Like, it was just it like – it was a program. It was a program. You start at this. By the time I left that job, which I was there for three and a half years or like three years – I was making $49,000. So I got a few raises. I got a few promotions. Not very competitive raises. No, no, no. Um, But, and that was like as someone who was like considered like a high performer. Like I was always in the like top brackets of, Mm -hmm. of what have you. So then I got a job offer in New York and I tried so hard to negotiate and did not do so well. So I moved to New York and I got... My new salary, my rent had doubled. I was paying $1,375 to split a one-bedroom with somebody as opposed to having my own floor in Cambridge. Um, and my salary at P&G was $58,000 a year. Oh, so you got more money. We did. I got but more. But you wanted even more. I want to go into that, but yeah, let's keep going. Um, because it was, I mean – you can pay people like nothing to work in those fashion and beauty jobs in New York. So $58,000 was actually pretty good. Oh, it's like the job a million girls would kill for syndrome, yeah. like from the devil exactly. or Prado, where it's like there's so much demand in these jobs that they don't have to pay you very well. But the interesting thing was, is that company had just been bought by P&G. It was called Cosmopolitan Cosmetics and P&G bought them. So that when they like integrated and put us all into like this like loving level playing field, because again, it's all... Like it's all they had like band. Everything was band based, so it was like band one, band two, band three, and each band had a different salary. Well, it turned out that I was making far less money than anyone on the team, so like I had to work with my boss to like put a um like a um program together because I like P and G is so strict. Like you can't just give someone a twenty thousand dollar raise. Like you have to um like give it in smaller increments. So we worked together to get me up. And by the time I left there, I was making $78,000 a year. And that was, I was 28 years old. And that was, I stayed at P&G for three and a half years. And then I was actually laid off. It was devastating at the time. But I got a new job like within a few weeks. And that was at Cody. And Cody, I didn't, even bother negotiating because I was making 78,000 and I was like, it was 2008. It was the height of the recession. I was like so scared that I was like going to have to move home to Cape Cod with my family. They offered me $103,000. So that was my first time making good good bump. Yeah. First time making six figures. I also got like a 20% bonus. It was like a very stressful job and I worked a lot, but that was like my last corporate job because I was there for uh, a year and a half and then during that time, I started the blog. The blog was not making any money at all. And I um, ended up, but through the blog, I got offered the job at Bobble Bar. So I left there. And you can't really, neg- well, for an early stages startup, you kind of like just take what you're given. I was given a salary. I went down. 
even further to $70,000 a year. And I think maybe I got like a little bonus at one point. I can't remember. But Bobble Bar was a startup and they were growing. And by the time I left there, I was at, what was I at? I was at $105,000. Okay. And that was after four years. So between over four years, I got enough raises to get me back up to like basically where I was at Cody without the bonus. And yeah, that was, that's kind of like my salary history. I'm not going to make you say how much you're making now, but when you stopped working at Bobble Bar and started working for yourself, did you immediately make the same or more money or did you take a step back again? I was making, I was already making more money from my blog than I was from my salary. Okay. And I had saved a lot because I was making like double salaries. So I was like, well, if I'm going to leave, I'm going to save. So yeah. I had like six months of, of everything saved up. Okay. So then it's just been straight on the up. Just straight on the up all the time. No blogging, super inconsistent. Like six months ago, I was like, what is happening? And now everything's great again. Yeah. It really is so up and down. But I make more than that from my blog now. Um, Should I go? Yes. Okay. So my first job out of college, right when I graduated, and I graduated in 2008 in the recession, um, was with a consulting firm, and my starting salary is $45,000. And the company was pretty generous. I was there for two and a half years. By the time I left, I was making $65,000. And Never negotiated any for that. They were just like, they were pretty generous. They were just like, here's more money. Here's more money. Yeah, that was like Cody. They're like, here you go. So I left and I was making $65,000. And I, when I left, I moved to San Francisco. Which is a very expensive city. Which is an expensive city. I didn't have a job and I was doing consulting work for my old company at my salary at like the hourly equivalent of it. Okay. And... I moved in January and I didn't get a job until April. So I was starting to feel really nervous. Yeah. And I wanted to work in fashion. That was like my whole shtick. Mm -hmm. And I found this job on Craigslist, as one does. You found so many things on Craigslist, I feel like. Mostly just my job. Okay. So I found this job on Craigslist and I want to say that I got hired at 50 I believe. Okay. So you took a pay cut to go there. I definitely took a pay cut. In a more expensive city. I definitely took a pay cut, but I can't remember specifically. So I think I got hired at 50. Okay. And I was only there for a year because the company folded. But I remember during that time, I got a raise to 55000 Okay. And... Big jump. That was it. These are like Filene's level raises. <laughs> yes. So I was... The company folded and I didn't have a job for one summer and I interviewed at Bobble Bar. I got offered the job and I was like, I am such a type A a overachiever. I hated not having a job, not by my choice necessarily. So I got offered this job at Bobble Bar and I want to say that my starting salary was 50. So I took another step back, but like a little step back. Yeah. And still, I started at Bobble Bar. I was 26 and I was still not making the same as I made when I left my first job. So I had like a few years yeah. where I was just kind of like, okay, diddling around. Yeah. So when I was at Bobble Bar, I got, I was there for 
uh, just shy of three years and got a bunch of raises. So when I left there, I was making 90, I believe. Yeah. And yeah. So I felt like I don't know that I was necessarily well compensated, but I felt like I'd gotten a bunch of raises. That's the thing. When you start with such a low base, like that was like when I was at P&G, I was like, well, it's such a low base, but I've been given like $20,000 in raises. Yes. So then I started at Lola. I was the first employee at Lola. And they hadn't even launched the company yet. They just raised a seed round. And I remember... When they offered me the job, I want to say they offered me in the high 60s. Mm-hmm. And I was like, F this. And that was the first time I negotiated my salary, which we can talk more about. And I want to say that I came on at 78. But okay. I went from 90 to 78. And at this point, I was 28 or 29. Yeah. And so like, I wasn't making great money. Yeah. I was, I, it was a cool job. And it was like a great title. But I wasn't and I had good equity. We'll also talk about equity because I have a lot of thoughts about that. But um, I wasn't making great money. And so I was there for three years and they knew that they were like grossly underpaying me because it was a new company. Yeah. So by the time I left, I was making 130. And so big raises for you. Yeah, definitely got like brought up yeah. to it's such a sweet okay like, yeah. place. Yeah. And guys, keep in mind that these are New York salaries. Like, absolutely. I just want to like say that because I know someone like in the Midwest is like, "Wow, that's a lot of money." But in New York, it really it's so sad. Like how, like a hundred thousand dollars really doesn't get you that far. Totally. And across my time in New York, I was living in an apartment, my old apartment. When I moved in, the rent was twenty four fifty, and by the time I left, the rent was twenty seven hundred. So I was living in a one bedroom by myself. So you know, when I started. Over 50% of my salary was going to rent. Yeah. Like, it is expensive to rent here. And, I mean, you have to make choices. And for me, I'd I'd already lived by myself. I didn't want to go back to having a roommate. So that was important for me. But, like, yeah, if you're living in a cheaper city, the cost of living index is very different. And also, you know, like, we both work in business settings, not, you know, I think like a lot of people who are teachers or um, work in other careers with lower pay scales, like don't compare. Yeah. I don't want anyone to feel bad. I want to help people. Yes. Yes. That's the goal of this is to help people. Yes. Okay. So when was the first time that somebody offered you an amount of money, whether it was like in a job offer or for a raise and you were like, no, I want more? It was when I left it, when I left um, Filene's. So I had two job offers because I had an offer with Macy's and I had an offer with the company that had just been bought by P&G. We'll call it P&G for all intents and purposes. And what happened was the Macy's offered me much more money and also like a nice bonus and relocation. But I had like this cra- – I would have had this crazy contract. Like I had to stay for – two years or pay it all back. And I just, I didn't really love, I didn't really want, I wasn't, I realized I wasn't passionate about being a buyer. Like it was so much more math than it was like actually like handling product. Whereas I realized I was so passionate about the beauty industry and I wanted to work in beauty and I wanted to be in marketing. So I like already that, that company had an upper, upper hand, but I tried to explain like, you know, I have moving costs. Like I tried to negotiate for um, like some relocation money and 
I was just basically told no. And then I was like, well, what about more on the salary? And then I was also told no. And so I got turned down all around. And maybe I like shouldn't have been so enthusiastic and been like, yes, I want to come to New York and work for you. Like, because they were just like, no. And so that was disheartening, but I made it work. I lived with my aunt for three months so that I could save up for first lesson security on an apartment. Cause like moving to New York without relocation money is really, really hard unless you have, like, I was lucky I stayed in at my aunt's house in New Jersey for three months and didn't pay rent and saved all of my money for that. Sweet. How old were you? When I moved to New York, I was, I think I was 23. Oh, or wow. 24, 23 or 24. Okay. So you like went for it and were negotiating your salary early. And I mean, like, what did that? Ex- not successfully. Uh, yeah. But what did this experience of having it not successful it, do? It like, did me, you? It made me less like, just be like, oh, I asked for too much. Like it made me less confident in effort in asking for raises and everything. Cause I thought I was being paid so much more than everyone else. And it, then when we all, we all were friends, everyone at my level, and I was making like $20,000 less than most people on my team. And I had one of the bigger businesses, like, cause it was all, you know, we all had different like, vol- like volumes that we managed. So when was the next time that you tried to negotiate your salary? It was while I was still at P&G and I had the best boss. Oh, Rob, I love you. He was so supportive and he was like, this is really bad. <laughs> like, he's like, you are so underpaid. And so he, we like, just worked together to get me there. And he was like such a big proponent of education, like sent me to Cincinnati for like more training and stuff because he knew I was being compared to like a lot of these PNG types that had their MBAs. And of course, if you have your MBA, I mean, you should be paid more because you, well, I don't know if that's true, but if you have an MBA, you're likely to have a higher salary. At a company like P&G, it's like it goes into the equation. Not really at a startup, but so- but it sounds like you had an advocate there. I guess, yes. have you ever been in a situation again where you asked for a raise and like you went, you tried to get more money that somebody didn't want to give you and you got it? Like the opposite of what happened when you tried to negotiate your offer at PNG. That has not happened in my traditional career, but with the blog, it's happened quite a bit because I'm constantly given lower rates for than what I charge and I stick to my guns and we explain like I have like tons of data like as to like how my this is like weird pulling back the curtain a little bit but pulling showing that my audience does shop and that they do this and you know pulling google analytics and showing that like in 2018 where most blogs are losing traffic my my traffic grew 36%. So I've been able to get brands up in money and that's like you know maybe getting them up like $1000 versus getting a salary up $20,000. So it's a much smaller scale. But in doing that, I've been able to grow my my salary. Okay. Yeah. But never at – I never successfully negotiated a salary for any of, of my jobs besides at that one. And I think it was a mix of, like, just being, like, too satisfied with what I was given or not confident enough. Like, at Bubble Bar, I know that – we were. I was one of the first four, four employees, and we were all brought in at the same. And they were like, "We would love to give you more money, but we we can't. We're a startup. We have no money." Like the co-founders, I think, were paid the same as me. So, um, it's more getting raises and that kind of type of a thing. Yeah. Uh, so now I feel like a late bloomer because I didn't even try to negotiate any figure that was offered to me until 
I was taking the job at Lola. And I I will say like earlier in my career, I always felt nervous or ungrateful to ask for more money. Yeah. And I felt like in the situation I was in at Bobo Bar because I was brought in so low and then I kept getting raises and usually would like be like 10,000 at a time. So on a percentage basis, it was it was good. Um I would always feel ungrateful to ask for more even if market was higher it's feeling ungrateful it is it's feeling ungrateful and especially i think more so when you already work for a company that feeling of ungrateful where you like don't want because in a lot of cases in a smaller company when you're negotiating your salary you're negotiating it with your direct boss you're not negotiating it with like this random hr person that you like don't know yeah so it feels personal where it's like gonna bleed out into your work life so i always was like very just like anxious about being perceived as ungrateful. Yes. So I never negotiated anything having to do with money until I was offered this job at Lola. And the only reason I did, well, first of all, it was because I wasn't truly looking for a new job. Yeah. I had started to think about wanting to leave and this opportunity fell in my lap. I met with one of the founders to give her advice about marketing and got very wrapped up in the the business that they were building and kind of like the facts around the industry. I remember you talking to me about it afterwards because I remember being like, you can't go from Bolivar to a tampon company. And then we learned like this is not a low ad, but we learned like what was in like other tampons and like I was like, oh my God, I need to switch. Like, you need to go work there. And I mean I think learning This was so long ago. It was so long ago and learning that us as otherwise educated consumers had no idea was so shocking to me. Yes. But so they wanted me and I I wasn't really looking. I I don't I, I will say this. I didn't even give them a resume. I didn't do my resume between Bobobar and Lola. That was me at Bobobar. I like, just had drinks with Amy and Daniela and was giving them social media advice. I mean, I interviewed there, but there was no formal I love startups. resume. So yeah. You know, when they offered me, I was like, I was like, they want me more than I want that. Like, I have power in this equation. And they offered me such a low amount that I was like, I can't, I can't take the step back. I was like, I truly cannot yeah, justify going this far back. Um, and so I, neg- I negotiated that pretty aggressively, both in terms of the equity that I was given and my salary. But that was the first time I felt empowered. And I think for me that like kind of ripped a bandaid where then once I did that and I like figured out how it went, I was like, oh, okay. Every time somebody offers you money, ask for more. (laughs) And honestly, it's truly one of my regrets that I didn't know that or didn't have the confidence to act on that earlier in my career. Mm -hmm. Like I, I definitely think, and I don't know because working for startups, like to your point, there is less room to negotiate. So like if I had made more money earlier in my career, then I probably wouldn't have taken the Lola job and like my career would be totally different. But I'm like, I left money on the table. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you have any regrets or like things that you wish you'd done differently now at 37 than you did at the time? I'm trying to think. I think not really. I think um, I could have been more aggressive with trying to get raises while I was at Bobble Bar, but I didn't really, I don't want to say I didn't care because I felt so lucky that they let me do my blog and 
that and like never and I was growing my blog and like the the job was very complimentary to my um like influencer career because I was making such great connections and like the two were very symbiotic so I never wanted to like ruffle feathers but I probably could have gotten bigger like more and bigger raises okay so what about being on the opposite side of the table when was the first time that you were the hiring manager so negotiating somebody else's offer yeah, all of my when I was at Cody, all of my employees were like just given to me. Like I, I you inherited in, them. I'd inherit them. Yeah, so I never hired someone until I was at Bobble Bar, and that I I still feel like I didn't because it was still so new. Like I was literally given a salary by Amy and Daniela, and they were like, "We can pay this person forty thousand dollars." And I remember, you know, Ilana coming in, and Ilana did ask for more. Ilana is like our other best friend who lives in San Francisco, and she was my um, my favorite employee I've ever had. She so she asked for more, and they were just like, "Sorry, like we're a startup, we can't pay any more than that." And that was just that. And I was like, "I'm so sorry. Like, please take this job. I love you." And she made it work. But um, we did work very hard to get her raises because. Mm-hmm. Um, she was such a such a like top performer, and she started so low that like we got her we got her pretty good raises like throughout um, her career there. Yeah, yeah. I remember the first time I hired somebody. I was at my job after consulting. It was at this denim company called Indie, and that was the first time I hired somebody. And then, pretty then throughout my career have like hired other people. So I think it was very illuminating to me to be on the other side of that equation. And I think that also gave me more confidence to see kind of like how the sausage is made and like to understand that. And knowing the things that I do, I think also it's like changed the way that I think about negotiating. So you need to talk about that because you've told me some of this stuff and I'm like, oh, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, So then what I did was on Instagram, I had people send us questions and I just kind of like took those questions and formatted them into like, I didn't, people had like specific questions and I kind of just generalized Mm -hmm. them. So the, I want to talk first about negotiating your salary for a new job, not a raise, just like you're starting something new. Yes. And then we'll talk about raises. And then I have some like, I want to talk about equity. I want to talk about freelance, like. This episode is going to be three hours. Great. Just kidding. Okay. <laughs> this is a seven-hour podcast episode. Don't go to work today. Just listen to hey, us Hey, if talk. it is, there's going to be a part one and part two. I don't know. Okay. The first thing that somebody – I think, like, the p- place to start is how do you know how much to ask for? Okay. So the first thing that I want to say is that it became illegal in the last few years in New York City to ask somebody how much they are currently making in an interview. I had no idea. It's true. And I know that there are other places that have that law as well. I, I also don't know how prevalent or how well known this is. So, you know, don't <laughs> don't throw it in somebody's face and be like, this podcast I listened to said this is illegal. Yeah. However, you do not have to tell in New York City, you don't have to tell your hiring manager how much you are making at your current job. So I want people to be aware of that. But this is what Grace was alluding to. So when you negotiate, I would say, first of all, try to get them to say their number first, always. The reason being is that if you're in the situation where Grace went to Cody and they were just like, we're going to give you a $25,000 pay bump. And I mean, 
at that type of company, it's pretty. Like and the, the salaries bonus. Are, I was like, wait, wait, are you kidding me? Well, the salaries are banded and it's pretty rigid. So, you we know, they probably also would talk have, about vacation time, too. I have this in oh. here and I'm curious what you think about this. They also doubled my vacation time. Like, it was crazy. But they probably would have done that anyway because, like, yeah. that's how they compensate people. Yeah. So it was just, like, this wonderful thing. But at a at a different company, like, if if you had said 78, they probably wouldn't have been, like, cool 103 yeah so i I never told them what i was making yeah so i think the first thing is always try to get them to say their number first because especially if it's at a big company who knows maybe it's more than you're even going to ask for Mm -hmm. but the second thing that i would say is that and this is like to negotiate anything always have room to come down start more aggressive than you want to end up because somebody is going to it is very rare that somebody just says, okay. Yeah. So somebody is going to come back to you with something that is lower than that. And if you have said the number that you want, you either have to capitulate and and come down from that or like you have to walk away. So if you want to make $80,000, I would say tell them that you want eighty five, And then if they come back at 75, you say, okay, can we meet in the middle at 80? And then you've got what you wanted in the first place. And what's interesting, and I don't know if all bosses do this or if I'm just like a little shady, is that when I gave people job offers, I always lowballed them. I always gave, I always offered them lower than my budget. Yeah. Because my expectation is that they were going to negotiate with me and that I would end up coming up to my budget. So I would always give it wasn't like I was trying to save money. I would always like give them the full budget, but like I started lower so that when they negotiated I had room. Yeah. And so like I think in some cases like there's more money in the banana stand. And then second of all, like on the other side of that equation, like you can't just expect somebody's going to just say like okay, you're right. Great. So like I think start high and in the best case scenario they meet you there but if not you've room to go down and still get what you want i think that's such good advice and something i didn't ever really think about i mean it's something that i told you like i was a late bloomer with regards to negotiating your salary but it's something that i really learned being on the other side of the Mm -hmm. equation like somebody's probably even if they really want you they're probably not or maybe not giving you their full budget out of the gate. Yeah. So Oof. that's that's that. Okay. So okay. you've gotten your first offer. You got it. It's in your hand. Got the job. What do you do next? What do you do next? Do you tell me? Oh, uh, I didn't. Okay. Oh. Well, I would say I, in my case, I'm like, yes, thank you so much. This is great. No. Well, no, this goes back. If somebody offers you money, ask for more. Ask for more. So if they offer you 70000 I'm going to use 80000 for all of my examples. Okay. It'll make things easier. So if they offer you $80,000, like, I wouldn't just say, great. So yes. I would say thank you so much. Like, this. see, that's the other thing is I'm too nice and effusive. I think then you say, you know, I was hoping to make 90. I would also not feel pressure to say anything on the phone or in person. I would say, that's great. I would I would love, can you send this to me in writing? I would love to um, 
look this over and I will get back to you with thoughts. Like, you don't have to say anything. Yeah. So just like take a beat because also it is harder to negotiate on the spot and in person than if you take a minute and think about what you're going to say and like it's so dorky, but like you could write it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, don't feel pressure to respond in the moment. But I would say if somebody offers you money, what do you do, Grace? Ask for more. Exactly. So, okay, so I have two stories that I think are very interesting. So two of the people that I hired at Lola had like the most, and I won't, one of them knows I'm going to talk about this, but I'm not going to name names. They had such different negotiating styles. Okay. And I think it's really interesting. So one of them, I offered them the job and immediately they asked for more money and I, you know, I did the whole song and dance of like, well, I'm going to have to talk to our founders or like HR or whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, came back and was like, okay, we can't give you the amount you want, but we can give you a little bit more. And the, the person said, no, like they really stood their ground And um, it was this back and forth negotiation. And I actually wasn't sure if this person was going to accept the job. But afterwards, I had found out that they were getting counsel and they knew they had in their head an amount that they wanted, which was not the amount they were saying. It was lower than that. And they ended up getting it. They got the amount they wanted or they got the... No, they got the amount they wanted. Okay. So, but they were very, like, they were very aggressive in wanting more and knew in the back of their mind they were going to settle for something in between and like had that and like pushed back probably twice. And what I thought was so interesting about that was, first of all, I think a lot of people are gun shy at the beginning of a negotiation or when starting a job because they don't want to be like, I don't want to start on the wrong foot, you know? And like the thing is, because I was always worried about being perceived as ungrateful or like, that I needed the job more than they needed me. Is it's yes. like, and that's a big New York mindset. Totally, but it's like they picked you. They interviewed all of these people. They picked you. They offered you the job. They didn't pick two people. They weren't like, oh, well, like we'll offer them both and see who will accept less money. Like they offered you the job, so they you already know that they want you more than anyone else they found. So like you, even if it doesn't feel like it, you are in a position of power where you are their top choice in the context of the option. So asking for more money, like, you already know that they like you. Mm -hmm. So, like, do it. And hire and going back to the table and finding a new top choice is a pain in the ass. Huge pain in the ass. So that's one story. But on the other side of the coin, there was somebody else that I hired, and I expected them to negotiate just based on their personality and based on their – where they were in their career path. Because, you know, also at this point, I was not hiring entry-level mm-hmm. people. Um, and somebody else did not negotiate their salary whatsoever. And I was shocked because I was like, oh, wow, I lowballed you. All- like, we would have paid you. I didn't say this, obviously, but I was like, oh, we would have paid you significantly more. You just, Ooh. like, didn't ask. So mm-hmm. you, like, signed the offer. And I was like, oh, okay, great. That just happened to me with like a bigger partnership that I got, and I found out that they like d- just like lowballed 
me and just expected me to ask for more. And I'm so glad I did ask for more because when I was like signing the deal, I was like shaking and so nervous to ask for more money. And not that I I love both of these people dearly, but like not that it made me think any it did it definitely did not make me think any worse of the person who negotiated tougher. But like I kind of looked at the uh, the person who didn't negotiate and I was like, well, like I really expected this person to especially like if you're getting into this job in marketing, you're managing money and budgets and things. So like you'd hope they'd ask for more if it was a smart hire. Yeah. So I mean, the other question is like how far do you push? Which I think is like an interesting question because at some point like the advice that I'm giving to be clear is like always ask for more money, but like there are certainly cases where you may not get more money where, you know, for instance, in jobs with more rigid salary bands, like as you're at a nonprofit, somebody was saying like their entire salary is dependent on fundraising number. So like there might be factors where somebody's not going to give you more money, but like yeah. how do you know how far to push? I feel like that's a very intuitive thing. Um, like just like reading the signs, like, and that's hard because you're not, if you're not in person because over email, everything seems so much more like cut and dry than it actually is. I don't, I don't really know. I think like maybe twice. Okay. I would say it depends. I mean, I think the other question to your example earlier is like, do you have another offer? Yeah. Because while they're not offering multiple candidates the same job, you very well could have multiple offers. And I think being in a position, I sound like such a competitive, I sound like the wolf of Wall Street right now. I sound like such an asshole. You sound like a badass. But um, have if you can have two job offers, you can use it as leverage to negotiate against the other person. And frankly, like, you don't have to want both jobs. You only have to want one of them. And you can use the other one against it where, you know, if you're able to say, like, this other company is offering me this much money, there's a lot more incentive than negotiating against nothing and saying, like, I I want, I deserve more money. Yeah. There's, like, a more tangible, like, feeling that you could go somewhere else versus, like, yeah, you you can start at the beginning again of your job hunting process and, like... Mm -hmm. But having another offer, I think, is, like, a huge amount of leverage. It is. In my case, though, when I moved to New York, it didn't help me. It didn't help, and I don't think it always does. But I would say, I guess my advice would be to continue, even if you find a job that you really want, to continue to pursue other opportunities, even if you like that one more, first of all, because nothing is a sure thing. But then second of all, to be able to use that as leverage against the job that you do want. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that's one thing. And then I guess, you know, at that point where maybe you've pushed as hard as you can, what do you do then? So you mentioned negotiating benefits, and that came up a ton in my Instagram question box. But I thought that was really interesting because at most places I've worked, you wouldn't be able to negotiate your benefits. People were like, negotiate your vacation time. And it's like, can you imagine it at Bobble Bar? If you ask. And there were like 15 people and you're like, why does Grace have six weeks off and I only have three weeks off? Like, it would be so obvious and weird. We all got two weeks off. I was 32 years old at one point with two weeks of vacation. It was so sad. All my friends had like six weeks off. But it sounds like working at a bigger place, that is viable viable. to negotiate i think it's totally viable i didn't try and do it when i went to png because it was like right after my first job 
I did it. I didn't do it at Cody because they were like, we're going to give you three weeks off. Plus we closed the whole week between Thanksgiving and Chris and sorry, between Christmas and New Year's and you'll get seven full Fridays off in the summer. I was like, this is the best. Mind mind you, I did leave Cody within two years because I wasn't happy. So what things do you think other than your vacation time are negotiable at a big company at a big company i think vacation i don't know of anything else at at a large company because you're not going to get equity no the other thing that somebody that came up a couple of times was um the ability to work from home oh that's that's a nice one and i think that that's becoming more popular today Mm -hmm. like there's this whole like like flex like flex time culture Right, and maybe not 100% work from home, but, you know, having the ability to work from home two days a week or, you know, yeah. whatever it is. And especially if you have children yes, where that's more important to you than you're just like, I'm a lazy asshole like me. I feel like it's and easier as if you have children to say that. Because if I'm just picturing me if I was to go back to a job and be like, so I'd really, really like to work from home two days a week. And they'd be like, why? And I'd be like. So I can work next to my cat. Well, I mean, it depends. You know, who knows? Like, you could not have kids and you could have a really long commute or yeah. there's other factors. Totally. But yeah, I think like if you or I were like, I can walk to the office, but I'd like to work from home. They'd be like, who are you? Yeah. So, I mean, OK. So I think negotiating your benefits is one thing. But then I think also the other thing that I would always say is if you cannot get the compensation you want when you are hired, Make sure to negotiate in writing that you will get a performance review at X months. That's really smart. Ideally three, maybe six, based on your performance. And like you can renegotiate your pay. So because at a lot of places, they only look at comp once a year. So make sure that you have an intermediary touch point where you're like, cool, I'll prove it to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Like, we're going to talk about it again. So you, so you don't have to feel like – because I feel like there's something where you first start a new job and you're like, well, I just started. I can't negotiate my pay. Yes. Like, make sure that that's set from the beginning because it's not awkward if you said, hey, remember when I was hired and we said that in three months we'd revisit my compensation? Mm-hmm. I think that's such a smart idea. Make sure you do a good job. Yeah. I was going to say, sometimes you can negotiate a signing bonus. True. I have never successfully pulled this off, but I've heard of it being done. Or relocation expenses, if that's yes. if you're relocating. Yes. Also was unable to get that. Yeah. Can we take a quick minute to talk about stock options? This is something I feel very passionately about because I learned a lot through doing it. And I know you did too. Oh my gosh, so much. And I don't feel like there are good resources and I don't feel like this is as common knowledge. Mm-hmm. So if you work for a startup or a smaller company, a lot of times part of your compensation is stock options. And the way that stock options work is it is the ability to buy stock shares at a preferred price. Yes. It's not they're not giving it to you, they're which is the thing I didn't you. understand. Yes. So for instance, Maybe you are starting at this random company. This is not a real life example. Um, and you get a thousand stock options that you can buy at 50 cents per share. Mm-hmm. And so you are basically betting that in the future, these shares will be worth 
exponentially more and you will make the difference between whatever they are worth in the future, let's say $10 and 50 cents. Mm -hmm. So it can be very lucrative. I have a few things to say on the topic. First of all, stock options are based on a vesting schedule. So at most companies, it is a four-year vesting schedule Mm -hmm. and there's a one-year cliff. And what that means is that if you stay for less than a year, you don't get anything. You don't start vesting until one year and at one year you vest 25% and Mm -hmm. then after that you vest every month. Every month. And that was a big thing for me when I left Bar. I was at like three years and like nine months and in my head I thought that I was going to lose 25% of my equity because I didn't realize it vested monthly. And then I found that out because I was at a point where I didn't want to leave but I was just so burnt out between like my blog and running that and then doing this day job every day. And so I was like at a point where I was like so – I was just so fried. And when I found out that I was only going to lose three months worth of my equity, I was like, oh, I can can do that. So I mean I think that's one side of it. But on the other side of it, like if somebody offers you a 1,000 stock options, you're only going to get a 1,000 if you stay for four years. Yes. If you stay for one year, you're only going to get 250. So I think like – have that in your mind that you're not getting the full amount. The second thing is it's like betting on fake. It's like fake money, you know? Yeah. Because that's the thing is like, I feel like you hear all of these stories with Facebook and Airbnb and these big tech companies where everyone becomes a millionaire. That is very unlikely. It is very, very unlikely that unless you are the first company at the next Slack or Uber or whatever, that you're going to make millions of dollars. But the second thing is that that is not real money. It's not real money. Until the company sells Sells. or goes public. So I have like a shit ton of options for Bolivar, which is on, it's a successful company and, but they haven't sold. So it's, it's just fake. It's just like floating out there. Like I struck my options, which I then had to like liquidate my savings to buy them. Well, that's the thing is the, the, thing that I think a lot of people don't know is that if you buy your options, you have to pay tax on Mm -hmm. the difference between what it costs you to buy and their current value. So let's say you're offered these shares at 50 cents and you believe in the future they're going to be worth $10 a share. Mm -hmm. You leave and you have to pay three. uh, the current value is $3 per share. You have to pay tax on $2.50 a share. Mm -hmm. And so you have to pay tax on that today. Today, when you strike it. And your money. Without making anything. Your money is fake. You don't get $3. That's just like what the value is worth. You can't sell those shares. You can't do anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are secondary markets for like very big, like, um, startups that uh, you know, like are presumed to be worth money. Like you can sell Uber shares on like a secondary market before they went public. But like with the average company, like you were sitting on fake money and you have to pay real money taxes on it. That was that was like soul crushing for me because I had money saved when I left Bolivar and I had to pay like, I mean, since we're just throwing all numbers out, I had to pay like $30,000 in taxes in addition to like my regular taxes extra because of the fake the fake money. I mean, I believe in the company and I hope that one day all of my equity is worth something. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm only saying this because this is something that really tripped me up where I was very 
blinded by stock options. And I was like, cool, this is worth a ton. And it's like, actually, it's not. Like, I would say you should think about it as extra. Yes. You should think about it as like, you shouldn't think about it as in place of getting the salary you deserve. You should think of it as like a bonus. Exactly. And for me, I was taking like a $35,000 pay cut. And I was like, but I have like all this equity. It's so cool. Right. And it's like, okay, so you took a $35,000 pay cut. So, so then multiply that. Well, no, multiply that by four years that you were there. And oh. it's like, cool, you need to make $140,000 on your stock options in order to like make back the lost salary. So it's like, if you're making, let's say you make $300,000 on it. This is like a, a totally random example. It's like, you're just kind of like making up for what you lost out on that you should have gotten. And then You're you have totally $150,000 right. that you need to pay taxes on when you sell it. And it's like, that's not life-changing money. It's great. It's yeah. down payment on a house money. It's like paying off your student loans money. But it's like, it's not life-changing money. And I think a lot of people take dumb offers because they think that they're going to be Mark Zuckerberg and mm-hmm. get you know, be a billionaire when this company sells. And I think that we both have like equity from pretty great companies. Sure, sure. And neither of us are millionaires. And I'm not saying not to do it, but I'm just saying like, think of it as extra. Don't think of it as you should take a huge trade off in what you think you deserve on salary because you are getting stock. I wish I had this advice like, I don't know, eight or how. Yeah, like 10 years ago when I took the job because I just remember like showing it to my parents and talking to it with friends and it just seemed like so wonderful. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, like if you can, having a lawyer look over these things, which I get when I was taking the job at Bobble Bar, I was 26. I like clearly didn't have a lawyer and wouldn't have paid a lawyer, you know, even one hour of like a $300 fee to yeah look same. at it. But if you can have a lawyer look at it and you know or if you have a friend's parent who's a lawyer or something like do that and the second thing which i will just say super briefly because this is such a niche case is there is a way to forward vest your equity so if you are a very early employee at a company you should look into forward vesting and filing a form 83b which protects you against some of the tax we did not do that some of the taxes that you might incur until the stock actually sells. Mm -hmm. So that is my, I will get off my soapbox, but I just feel very passionately about that because it's so easy to look at that and be like, oh my God, this is my lottery ticket. Mm -hmm. And it rarely is. Yeah. So before we talk about raises, you know who doesn't need to worry about negotiating their salary? Dogs. Grace, how was that for a transition? A plus plus. Oh, thank you. So today's episode is sponsored by BarkBox. I want a dog so much, Becca. I really want a dog. We have a dog sponsor. Why can't I have a dog? So BarkBox is the dog crazy company that celebrates the special connection you share with your dog. I want that connection. They curate a monthly box filled with all natural dog treats and innovative toys that both you and your dog can't wait to open. They offer free shipping in the U.S. and you get over $40 worth of toys and treats with subscriptions starting at just $22. 
So I also don't have a dog. I also really want a dog. So maybe soon, but I have bought this for a gift before. I bought it for my aunt, who is a crazy dog lady, and she has three dogs. And the dogs went bonkers for this. And what I think is really funny is that her dogs don't even tend to like toys, but they loved these. There is still a pizza slice toy that they got in one of their bark boxes that is like a favorite. What is it about those random things? Like Tyrion has a banana that he carries around in his mouth and it's the best. Like some of them are better to them. Like we can't tell the difference, but they can. Yeah. So it makes such a great gift for dog owners. And you can send them a box or you can also send a gift card so they can set up their own. Should we send one to my parents' dog? Muddy is pretty picky. I mean, we probably should, especially since they have a 100% happiness guarantee. So if Muddy doesn't absolutely love something in the box, their customer service team will send her something she will love for free. That is amazing. I really want them to come out with a cat box. A meow box. In the meantime, you'll just have to get this for your parents' dog. I'm going to. But if you want to try BarkBox or gift it to someone who loves their dog, like I'm going to do, for a free extra month of BarkBox, visit BarkBox.com slash B-O-P when you subscribe to a 6- or 12-month plan. So that, again, for a free extra month of BarkBox, visit BarkBox.com slash B-O-P when you subscribe to a 6- or 12-month plan. Let's talk about getting raises at an existing job because we're not dogs and we need money. Yes, we do. So how often do you think is appropriate to ask for a raise? I think it really depends on the situation. Like if you're being dramatically underpaid, I think twice a year is definitely like more than okay. Maybe even three times a year. Otherwise, I think it's like an annual situation. Yeah, I think – I think – I would say twice a year. I think three three times a year is aggressive. Yeah, I do too. But when you were I, just being so aggressive earlier, I was like, well, maybe three times. But what I would say is that if you want a raise, coming into your review should probably not be the first time that you broach that topic. Mm-hmm. Like this should be a discussion that you are having in advance of that. Like not blindsiding them, but you shouldn't be like, you know, you're getting your review and this is the first time that you're like, by the way, I think I'm dramatically underpaid and I would like a $20,000 raise. Like that should be a conversation that you're having ongoing. Yes. If you are paid appropriately and you just want slightly more money, leave that until your leave that until your um, performance review. But like your case when you were at P&G, like you were saying you and your boss were working together, like this should be something. It was like a plan. Yeah, like this should be something that you are discussing as many times a year as you can stomach, mm-hmm. like every month, like be be annoying. Yes. So be a squeaky wheel. Be a squeaky wheel. Yeah, I think twice a year is like the most appropriate unless you're like grossly underpaid. Mm-hmm. So how... What do you think is the way to go about making the case for a raise? I think it's building a brag book. We've talked about this on another episode. We talked about this with Aliza. Yes. And like saving all of the things that you do throughout the year because you're going to forget. So make like a I, – I would recommend a folder, like a Dropbox folder and a um, 
why can't I talk today? A Google document. And just every time you do something really good, log it in the Google Doc, screenshot anything you can, and put it in that folder and label it by date so that it's all nice and organized. Then, you know, if you're feeling like, you know, you have extra time at night, you're watching The Bachelor, maybe make a PDF or like a a lovely little PowerPoint presentation. I would have you make my PowerPoint because we all know I suck at PowerPoint. I'm great at it. She's so good at it. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree. So I think having the brag book is really key. Um, the other thing that came up a bunch of times in my question sticker box on Instagram was people saying like, look up salary ranges online. And I actually don't think that that's great advice. It's always so different. It's always so different. So I mean, first of all, I think they're based on cities. So if you live in like Des Moines and you are looking at these salary comparisons for like New York City or LA, like of course they're different. So I think that's one thing. And then also even like in the cities, like I think they're based off of large companies. So if we were at Bobble Bar and like we went on there, it would probably be like the same salary comps from like P&G. And if I went in guns blazing and I was like, the appropriate salary range for my job is like one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars. Like I would get laughed out of the room. Totally. I think there's just more room to sound like you don't know what you're talking about by quoting those things, even though they're on the internet, even though they're probably true with like nine million asterisks and like caveats. Yes. I think you end up sounding like an idiot. Like I would say the better way to lead is with the value that you are providing the company. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then if they feel unable to give the raise, maybe you say, well, you know, I'd like to think about what other people in a similar role are compensated for. And maybe that's something that HR can help to comp or something. But I think like leading with like, well, this is what other people make is like, you just don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe you know, maybe you have access to some information, but like, in a lot of cases, I think you just end up sounding like an idiot. I agree. So, I agree. yeah, I, I like the brag book. Yeah. Like track. Yeah. Now, what do you do if you're denied a raise when you ask for it? Okay. I feel very strongly about this. Again, I feel strongly about everything today. Very passionate today. So if you are denied a raise, make somebody give you a tangible list of development items that you need to do in order to get a raise or a promotion as specific as possible. And like, you probably don't want to hear them because they're probably negative things about yourself, but ask for the most specific list you can get of what is the criteria to get a raise or a promotion. Then next promotion cycle or in six months, you have a list to then compare to and you can say, here is the criteria you gave me and the things that you said I needed to do to get this raise. Here are the ways that I have done them. Mm-hmm. Give me my money. Yeah. So when they give you that list, make a new brag book with like bullet points under each action item. Exactly. And show them how you achieved each thing. Exactly. I like make it so that it's like you made the rules. I followed the rules. Yeah. The result is my raise. Mm-hmm. So make sure somebody tells you. I think the worst thing you can do is just like be like, oh, okay. And then you're having this like random vague conversation again in six months or a year. And like you're thinking about it totally differently. And you know what? Maybe you're going to find that there is something that like you aren't doing that you didn't even know. 
that somebody else is expecting you to be doing in order to get this promotion. But like having the criteria laid out is like dummy proof. Mm -hmm. Dummy proof. So, okay, here's a question I have for you is, okay, you're denied a raise. You and it's, it's not because you're not doing the job or there are some boxes you need to check in order to get the raise, but they're just like, there is no more money. As a company, we cannot afford to give you a raise, even if you are at peak performance. Like, there is just no more money. How do you decide to when to stay or go? Well, I think you have to find out, is that always going to be the case? Like, is this just, this is my cap? Or is there opportunity? And that in a year, you they're going to get, like, a, say, a second round of funding, and they'll be able to give you that raise. So I'd find out a timeline. And I would think think about... Because I think that education is so important and, like, learning. And I would ask yourself, like, are you still learning a lot? Because if you are, I think that's reason to stay. But if you're at a point where you can kind of coast and, like, maybe you're a little bit bored and you're doing your job perfectly, I think that's when it's time to look for something else. I totally agree with that. And I, I, I'm glad that you said the second part because I think I've been such a hard ass this whole episode. But at the end of the day – Liking what you do is so important. Another big thing is, are you making like great connections? Because I built such a network while I was at Bobble Bar. For sure. But even absent that, just like liking what you do day to day and being happy is worth something. It is. Non-monetarily. And if you can afford to live on your salary and you are happy, that might be a trade-off that you're willing to make. Because like, frankly... The best way to make more money is to job hop. Mm -hmm. The best way. Like if you keep going new places after a reasonable amount of time, that is how you make more money than getting raises in-house. But like you might need to go to places and accept jobs that you don't want to do. So I think also knowing what your personal barometer is for happiness versus money is really important. Yeah. Because I think – Some people, and there's nothing wrong with this, are work-to-live people where they're like, I will do a job that I don't like and I don't care about, and then I'm going to leave at 5 o'clock and I'm going to go spend time with my family. I'm going to go pursue these other hobbies that making this salary enables me to do, and I'm not one of those people. I am like a live-to-work person, and I... This is why we get along such a workaholic, and like if I'm going to be spending... 60 70 hours of my week doing something like it is important to me to like it more than it is to be making the most money so i i would say like negotiate as hard as you can but at the end of the day like know what your own personal compass says Mm -hmm. i really agree with that i think that it's like such a unicorn situation to have a job where you maybe you're working really hard but you love everyone that you work with and you're really really happy. I mean a really quick example is Cody versus Bobble Bar. I was so unhappy there. I was just I felt very stifled. I didn't really have any close friends there. I went to Bobble Bar and was making so much less money, but I met some of my best friends. I truly loved what I did every day and I was just so happy. Thank God you hated this job or you would never meet me and we would never have this podcast. I know. Well, I wouldn't have – I always say I wouldn't have started my blog either because I I was so, like, unfulfilled, like, that I came home and would write in my blog every night. And that's, like, what led me to everything. So sometimes having a job you don't like can lead you into cool places. That's that's not a bad point. Yeah. 
Hot topic time. Hot topic. Is it more wine time, maybe? Yeah. Let's, I don't know. Yeah, let's pour a little refill. So we just refilled our wine. We took a pause in real life. Mm-hmm. Is it time to talk about a hot topic? Yes, it's definitely time. What about talking about salary with your friends? The poll results that we had shocked me. This is so interesting. Okay, I want to say what we think first before I tell people what everyone else thinks. Yes. For or against. Give me your one-minute argument for or against. I'm mostly for it, except um, when you have, like, lateral friendships. So when I was at Bobble Bar, I was – like, most of my friends weren't fellow heads of businesses. So I wasn't going to, like, talk to, like, Ilana and be like – or even Jackie at the time, like, and be like, well, this is what I make, like, because that was weird. But, like, for your your girlfriends, I know how much all of my friends make, like, because we talk about it openly. And especially, um, like, with other bloggers and things, like, I have, you know, I'd say, like, maybe five very close friends that have, like, a similar audience to me and stuff. And we always talk about this. Like, you know, the other day a friend of mine was like, I'm thinking about raising my rates. Like, my traffic has grown and now we have to do Instagram stories in addition to all the other stuff. And I was like, I think that's great. I raised my rates in January when I looked at my traffic numbers and I looked at, like, what the new asks were. So I think it's so important to have a sounding board and a good support network with that. I am 100% in favor of sharing your salary with your close friends. Close friends. I realize that we just told everyone our entire salary history on the podcast, and that is an exception. But we didn't talk about what we currently make now. True. And I, I'm not saying that you should like put it in your Instagram bio, but I think <laughs> you should talk to your close friends about what you make because I think otherwise you are, like I said before, you're using that crappy internet information that doesn't really have a basis in true reality in your city, in your level of experience, et cetera, I think the best way is to talk to your friends in order to develop that benchmarking system to understand what other people are making. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like figuring out if you're underpaid, figuring out, you know, what you should be striving for. I'm going to say the poll results because I, I want to say something related to that. So... The poll results were 48% yes and 52% no way. This shocked me. And the question was, do you talk about your salary with your closest friends? Talk to your friends about money. It's important. And one comment that a lot of people wrote back was that they were embarrassed to share because they knew their friends made more. So they didn't know how much their friends made, but they knew they made more. And I think in that case, it's like, you only know you can only know what you're striving for if you talk about it openly. Absolutely. Like, are you underpaid by thirty thousand dollars? That's something you should know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah, I think there's nothing bad to come from telling your closest friends who you trust and are not going to screw you mm-hmm. with this information. And I think to the person who's saying that they're embarrassed because their friends make more. I have a very close friend who works in a career field that is in the public sector and pays very little money. And he is very open about what his salary is, both because he's an open person and also because you can look it up online if you really wanted to know because it's it's he works in the public sector, so it's published. Yeah. But I think the other thing is if you are open about how much you are making, it will make people more sensitive to your financial constraints. Totally. So with this person, you know, 
if he says that he doesn't want to come out because he's like, I can't afford it. You're not like, oh, boo, you're a buzzkill mm-hmm. versus like if you didn't know that it would be very easy to just be like, oh, you're blaming it on money. Like, why don't you want to go on this trip? Yeah, do go to this dinner, do this thing. So I think being honest about your situation is even if it feels scary is in all cases positive. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more. I just think it's so important because like how else are you going to be able to develop your barometer? I agree. Of how much you should be paid unless you're talking about this. Mm-hmm. And I get it. Like, look, maybe you live in Sex in the City and you're a writer and your friend's a lawyer and your other friend's a PR exec. It might not be, it might not be apples to apples comparisons, but I think just like knowing that information in your city, you can like extrapolate. Like it's helpful to have other data points. It's really helpful. What about this? A lot of people said that they share, but their friends won't share back. I mean, what are you going to do? Like get on your friend's case and be like, why won't you tell me? I don't know about that. But what I would say is like framing the conversation in a way that they know why you think it is important. Yeah. I think leading with the fact that you're like, I want us to have I would like to have an open conversation about how much money we make because like women are underpaid and I would like to like build more data points to know how I should be thinking about my salary and my future earning potential totally it's like a weird like yeah I get I get that it can come off as weird if you were just like I make eighty thousand dollars how much do you make yeah like it's it's a weird non sequitur but I think helping people to understand why it's important and why it also benefits them I don't know. I think people should be more open. I completely agree. I was really surprised by these poll results. I guess I was and I wasn't. I was shocked. It's very contrary to how I um, how I think. But do you remember very, very early on in, in the podcast, we did a some kind of, I don't know if it was a career episode or if it was just a career question. And um, we expressed that we believed that you should share your salary with your close friends. And do you remember that person who wrote us back and was horrified? Yes. Oh, we got a very long message. Somebody was horrified by that. So I guess in in that way, I wasn't surprised. But I think it's something to really think about. I'd like to change hearts and minds here. Mm -hmm. I think it is beneficial for you personally and all of women if we are talking about this. Another thing that I thought is interesting, and I can't say that I – have this experience is another listener pointed out that extending the conversation to men is important because as women make less than men, knowing how much you are under earning by is important. And I think this is like very true. But personally, I don't have a lot of close male friends in the same in the same field. Well, there are very few in the world of fashion blogging. Sure. But I will say when I was at P&G, what really sparked my whole realization that I needed to like make more money was there was four of us all at the same level. Um, One of them was a guy. He was the youngest. So he came to us right after school. So I want to say he was 21 and I was 24. And at the time, three when you're right out of school, three years feels like a big difference. And I found out that I was making $58,000 a year and he was making ninety. What? Yes, because he came from Europe um, to the U.S. and I guess with exchangers. And he was getting um, his rent like 
like subsidized by the company because it was like hilarious. I was like we all would hang out and he came over my apartment and it was like a shared one bedroom, like a real shitty apartment. And then I went over his apartment and he was living in the Lower East Side in one of those big towers, like above Whole Foods, I want to mm-hmm. say, with like Florida seal and glass windows in a one bedroom. And I was like, something feels off. So we just talked about it. And that's fascinating. And I, wasn't, I wasn't mean about it. I wasn't like, how much are you making? I was like, I was like, how, like, how do you afford this? And he was like, well, it's a lot like P&G really takes care of expats and blah, blah, blah. blah. And we had like a whole conversation. That's the other thing. Is and I, I didn't think, go to. Oh, sorry. I think that you can be jealous of somebody in a non, like, in a non-damaging way. Like, you could be like, I wish I was making $90,000 yeah. and my company was paying for this. But I, I don't think, I, you're not going to, like, hate him. Yeah, no, I didn't hate him. I didn't use him as an example in to my boss. I was just like, I think I'm, like, being really underpaid. And he was like, yeah, you are. <laughs> and that sucked. But I, it didn't affect my friendship with him. I was, and, like, we were, like, honest. I'm like, I'm not going to, like, throw you under the bus. But It's like, the company's fault. It's not it's his the company's fault. fault. And it was, it was just so crazy to see someone three years younger than me living a completely different lifestyle. Like, he would suggest restaurants for us to go to. And I'd be like, I can't afford to go eat there. Like, I'm on the, like, ramen and $2.99 wine from Trader Joe's menu. So it was interesting. Do you want to change topics a little bit and talk about freelance? Yes. I don't want to spend too much time here, but I do think that this is important and I'm personally interested. Yes. I think that your 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 um experience is probably a lot more relevant than mine because I work on like individual project basis with brands and it's all very traffic and statistic based. Not necessarily. Okay. Well, so I will say price so somebody asked specifically about how do you price yourself as freelance? I would I'm going to give you a specific tip, but I will give a few caveats first. So first of all, when you go freelance, you have to pay for your own health insurance. You have to pay more in taxes usually. In my case, I incorporated my business and I also pay an accountant much more than I did before I was freelance. So I think one thing is that your salary is not apples to apples, where if you're making $80,000 in-house... Making $80,000 as freelance is oh, the no, same. Oh, no, no. You need to make probably 25% more. Yeah, I think that's a good benchmark. So yeah. that's one thing is that I would say it's not apples to apples. Second thing is I would say I did this math exercise. I think I found it somewhere online. I don't remember where. But I thought it was very helpful. So in order to figure out what your freelance salary should be, take the amount that you need to make in a year. So Let's use your example. You're in-house, you're making 80, you're going freelance, so you need to make 25% more. So you're gonna you need to make a hundred thousand dollars. So that is your that is your number. So from there, figure out how much so to figure out how much you need to make on an hourly basis, what I would do is I would take that and I would divide it by, let's say you're obviously not gonna work 52 weeks of the year. So I would even say you're probably not going to work 48 weeks of the year. And the reason for that is that you'll probably have lean times and you'll probably like maybe not have a full client load all the time. So even just allowing for a vacation, I would also shave more off of that. So let's say maybe you assume that you're going to work 
42 weeks out of the year. And that means like full load. We're probably like there will be times where you're working a little but not full time. So I would take off like I would be very conservative and shave off the number of weeks from a full year that you expect to work. So if you have $100,000 to your target salary and you divide that by 42 weeks out of the year, you need to make $23,000 per week in order to make $100,000. So from there, I would say, how many hours are you going to work per week? And the other caveat I would give you is that freelance hours are very different than in-house hours. I would say one on the one hand, I can be much more productive and get more done in an hour sitting at my desk. But I also have a lot of transit time and there's a lot of admin stuff that you have to do for yourself. And all the networking stuff. All the networking stuff. To get more clients. So like realistically, you are not billing 40 hours a week. Like I would say your max is going to be billing 30 hours a week. And more realistically, like are you going to always have 30 hours a week of work? Probably not. So let's say that you say you're going to be making 20 hours a week as your like safe bet because this is your salary you don't want to be like the best case scenario on all fronts and then you're like oh i'm in like the normal scenario and Mm -hmm. you're like but i've priced myself based on everything being the best case scenario so then you take that and you divide it by you're going to work 20 hours a week so now in order to make a hundred thousand dollars a year you need to be making 119 dollars an hour on those billable hours So I think that's a good formula to work backwards from like, how much do I need to make in a year? And then how much time am I realistically working to back into an hourly rate? I think this is so smart, Becca. I didn't think about this at all when I left my job. I would say once you have that number, you need to decide if that is realistic. If you then say, okay, I need to be making $119 an hour, but like, I don't know what your career is. I I can't think of a good example. But like, is that realistic for you? So then you need to be like, okay, do I need to actually figure out how to work more hours or do I need to figure out how to like supplement my income somehow because this is an unrealistic number? Or maybe you look at this and you're like, oh, yeah, this is on the low end. I feel comfortable. Yeah. So I think doing that top down math is really important to figure out your annual. But then I think bottoms up, like you were saying, figure out what other people who are doing the same thing you're doing are charging. Mm-hmm. Like if you are freelancing, theoretically, you have a good network because you are going to be selling yourself as a one woman show. So like you need to sell your business. So like you should have a network. Mm-hmm. So I think like to your point, make friends with other people who do the same thing that you do because they can help refer you business when there's so many times when I have a full plate Things come through my inbox and I'm like, oh, I don't have any time for this. But here are five other people I know who could. So I think like sharing the work is one thing. But like to your point, like you need to know what other people who are doing the same thing you're doing are making. Totally. Um, so I'm curious, like when you started talking to other bloggers who were doing the same thing you were doing, was it like very illuminating for you? Yeah, but I think it helped because I knew what most other bloggers were were charging for stuff because of Bobble Bar. 
Oh, so you had so, the inside information. I had like the pitch decks from a few big agencies. So I'd start it as a conversation. And it wasn't like I was trying to get information. But like with some of my close friends, I'd be like, guys, guess what I got my hands on? I've, I'd be like, I have the pitch deck. And then we would just talk about it. And like I was like, that's crazy. And I remember one friend being like, well, it's not that crazy. And I was like, what? And I found out that she had like m- much lower traffic than me and like around the same amount of Instagram followers and was charging like double what I was charging. And I was like, oh, I guess it's time to raise the rates. Well, that's an interesting question. How and when do you raise your rates as a freelancer? Because nobody's like, nobody's like, Grace, it's time for your annual review. Like market inflation is this much. So you're going to get this much of a raise. I usually do it in January. I like update my media kit and add rates. I do have a manager for my blog. So her name is Kristen. She's amazing. I pay her a small, like not small, but I pay her a monthly retainer. And then she also gets 10% of all deals that she negotiates on my behalf. And it's great because she keeps me on track. She reads all of my contracts for me before they go live. She, you know, does all of the back and forth with the brands about, you know, how much are we going to pay like this and that? What are the deliverables? So like, I mean, I need her, like I wouldn't be able to do everything I do, but she, she helps a lot with that. But I do a whole big like year in review at the end of every year. So I look at, has my traffic grown? Has my engagement grown? Um, What's my affiliate revenue like? Is it up or down versus last year? What were my top performing posts of the year? What were the top performing products of the year? Like how is our blog comments doing? I actually like itemize it. It's like I had 6,000 total comments this year versus, you know, 5,000 last year. Like, so, you know, maybe traffic was only up 5%, but comments were up 30%. So that's like showing something. So I always like craft a story to tell this year. I don't, this is probably boring for anyone who's not an influencer. This year, every brand added on Instagram stories, wanting that as a deliverable. And I will tell you, Instagram sponsored Instagram stories are a huge pain in the ass because you have to like create a script, record the video, make it look organic to your feed. And then if they don't like it, you have to record the whole thing again. I once had a project where they didn't like one frame, so I had to style my hair and put on the same outfit I was wearing and wait till the light was like 5 p.m. to like make it look like that just because I didn't want to record the whole thing again. (laughs) So like so much work goes into those sponsored Instagram stories and I was just giving it to them because they were asking for it. And like that was stupid on my behalf, but then I just started adding it, attacking on an extra fee. And so everything is kind of itemize and this and that. And I always have the data to back it up because like I had brands reach out and be like, hey, like we loved working with you last year. We want to do another sponsored post. And I'm like, oh my gosh, hey, like I love the brand. My readers loved it. Like would love to work together again. But just so you know, um, I've increased my rates to XYZ number. And would you be open to that? The reason behind that is my blog traffic was up this much this year. My um, Instagram audience has grown this much. My engagement is has grown this much. Like, hopefully you have positive stats to share. And then I was like, and there's this whole new world of Instagram stories where if you want that, like, I have to, like, record it for you. And if you don't like it, then I have to re-record. So, and no one has ever pushed back which makes me think maybe I should raise my rates again. Well, that's interesting because you have way more justification for it than I do. And I'm in I'm approaching my one year of working for myself anniversary. Yeah. I mean, I guess not quite. It's not till September. But 
I'm getting there and I'm kind of in my head and this sounds, I hope none of my clients are listening to this. This sounds like real greedy, but I'm like, well, supply and demand, like I've had a full plate for the whole year. So like rates, rates are going to go up because like I can charge more and feel comfortable that either people will pay it or I can find other work, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I think like, well, supply and demand is such a big part of it. Like if everyone is saying yes to you and no one is pushing back, I think that's another time to raise your rates. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of where I'm at, where it's like I, there's no data to be like, well, I'm X percent better at this than I was a year ago. Or I'm like, yeah, giving you Y percent more value. But it's like, well, you know, and I, I don't work with the same clients over and over. So, you know, it's always a different set. But it's like, well... I've had a full plate, so it's like I can charge more. What I would do is I would put together a deck with case studies of some of the brands you worked with over the, the year and like all the positive results. You oh, absolutely. Share. There's definitely justification in terms of that, but there's no justification for why like I cost this one month ago and then at some point I will cost something different. We're seeing that with our podcast. Our listeners, our audience has tripled, but um, a lot of the advertisers that we've had for a long time, it's hard to be like, well, actually, now you need to pay us more. Right. Because it's the same amount of work. Yeah. But you're getting in front of more people. Anyway, I don't know. I mean, I think have a big, have those big swinging balls and just like, I think sometimes it's also been surprising to me in freelancing that you say something kind of ridiculous sometimes and nobody pushes back and you're like, oh, Yes. I read something once that said if your stomach doesn't hurt when asking for a number, you're not asking for enough. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't think I'm asking for enough then. Yeah, me either. Well, we have even we we have a lot I of learned to a go. lot from this episode. I hope that everyone listening learned something from this. I feel so passionately about this subject and I just want to pass things along because as I mentioned I don't think that I was the best at this early in my career. And I think if I could go back, I would want to do things differently. And so I hope in, I can't rewind and help past Becca, but I hope I'm helping somebody else. Yeah, I think you are. Should we get out of salaries and talk about some other things? All the things we're buying with all this money we have? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. My obsession this week is a good one. It's the lipstick I was wearing last night. It is a drugstore lipstick. Revlon sent me all of their new um, high-def, glossy liquid lipsticks. So I'm just not into the matte lip trend. Like, I don't like it. Like, matte lip liquid lipsticks tend to dry out my lips, and I'm just not a fan. So they have this, like, gorgeous red-orange liquid lipstick. The color is called She's on Fire. I put a link to it in my Amazon shop. So my Amazon shop is linked in my Instagram bio. But it is so pretty. Like, even my my guy friend that I was out to dinner with last night was like, I like the lipstick. Like, that's a good one. And I was huh. like, yeah. So it's a good one. I'm obsessed. It And it's $8. Okay. I. It have, also smells like cherry chapstick. Ooh. Mm-hmm. I am in the same headspace, I guess. So my obsession, I swear this is not sponsored, um, Beauty Pie, who was an advertiser of like a month ago or so. And the use podcast. our code Grace sent me, but this is not an ad. Use the code Grace sent me. Um, so they were an advertiser. If you missed it, they're like a members club for beauty products. So you pay a monthly fee to get access to it and then their beauty products are very inexpensive. And so 
when we did the podcast ad, they gave us um, a six month membership. Oh my god, I haven't used my month some months. credit, mm-hmm. and my credit is gone. So I paid for this with my own money. But yeah. when we did it, um, all of the color cosmetics were that I wanted to try were out of stock. So I mostly got skincare stuff and brushes and candles, which are awesome. But I really wanted to try some of their color cosmetics. So the other day, I happened to get an email and I clicked through it. And I was like, I was like a kid in a candy store and I filled up like a whole cart. I got four lipsticks, a nail polish, three eyeshadow sticks. And um, the eyeshadow sticks are amazing. They're just like the Laura Mercier. I haven't tried them yet, but I got the lipsticks I'm so into. So I got two different types. So one is called Future Lipstick Luxe Shine. And it's like, I'm on their site right now as we're doing this. I'm like, I and I, I got two of these and I will tell you that I got it and I opened it and I looked at the color in the tube and I was like, I don't think I'm going to like this. But then when I put it on, I loved it. I am really into them. It's kind of like a, um, it's not sheer, but it's like, it's not a matte lipstick. You know, it's like mm-hmm. a lip. I don't know. It's like in between a, a gloss, gloss and, and a lipstick. lipstick. Yeah. So I got those. And then I also got two of these. It's called Shine Up Lip Color Bomb Stick. And I'm saying this because this what is a name. not an ad, but it's the same as like the Clinique um, Chubby Sticks, basically. Oh, okay. And I got two of those. I got one in a really fun like melony pink color. Ooh. Oh my God, I'm obsessed with them. I haven't tried the nail polish or the eyeshadow stick yet, but I'm like, this is great. The lipsticks were $4. Yeah, that's like wet and wild prices. It's so cool. I, I really get off on getting a deal. I love getting away with something. So I was like feeling like I like I hacked the system by getting these lipsticks for so cheap. I'm so psyched because I forgot that I had my membership for this month. I, I do it every month. I've been doing well, it Well, like- I have some out of stock alerts too because there were other things that I wanted to try that were still out of stock. Oh. Anyway. Can we oh, talk the to- shampoos and conditioners are live. Oh, I haven't okay. tried those. We're going to shut up about Beauty Pie. Again, it's not an ad. It really isn't. Yeah. I'm like, I'm just like legitimately excited about this. Yeah. Um, on Instagram, I see that we had the same one. You're yeah. gonna be mad at me. Becca stole mine. I didn't steal yours, but um, okay. I'll tell you who it is, and then I'll tell you the story. So, um, the person is her Instagram handle is Bookish Kate NYC. Mm-hmm. So she is somebody that I've been following for I don't know, like a couple months, a little bit. I just started following her because she started following me, I think, because of Sarah's bookshelves. And I was like, I love her. Um, So I've been following her for a couple months. She's very stylish. She's in her 30s. She seems like somebody I would be friends with. I've been watching her stories, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we would get along. Mm -hmm. So anyway, this morning, she DM'd me. And we have a mutual friend in common, which I didn't know. And she was like, hey, I've been asking John for a few weeks to like set up drinks for the three of us. And she's like, and he's being so flaky. So I just figured I would ask you and see if you wanted to get drinks with me. And I was like, this was like out of nowhere. And you didn't suggest that maybe I should be invited to these drinks too? We have opposite travel schedules, Grace. It's not going to happen. We do. So we're going out to drinks next week. Rude. I'm so excited, but I'll make her, I'll make her my friend and then we can all three be friends. Okay. So she's an Instagram friend that I want to make an IRL friend. Yeah. She's so stylish. I know. She, she, I'm, like I want more of her outfits. Yeah. Less books. I mean, the books are great too, but yeah. Yeah. Speaking of books, what, what are you reading? 
I am still reading Three Women. And I hate this because we've recorded a bunch of episodes this week in a row. But I will tell you what I'm going to read next. So tell me what you're going to read, read next. What I'm going to read next is, and I'm so excited for it, it came in the mail, is Jasmine Guillory's third book, The Wedding Party. And her books are just Ooh. so fun. Okay. Yeah, it's probably going to be, like, her books are like fun, steamy romances. This is the third one in the series. So it's like The, wed- the Wedding This is date. now The Wedding of the First Two People two people who got together in the first book, right? I think so. I think so, too. It was the wedding date, then it was the proposal, and this is the third one. Yeah. But they're kind of... I think it's a new couple, but then I think it's like the background is the wedding of the first couple. I like what she's done in that she like brings some of the characters back, but you could totally read any of the books on their own. Sure. You don't have to read them in um, order. A new one coming out. The Royal... It's the Royal something. Yeah. It's um, at Christmas, and it's like... Somebody who's like in this friend group goes overseas, and I I think it's like her mom falls in love with somebody. I really want Jasmine to like us. I feel like she doesn't. No, we tried to get her on the podcast a long time ago, and she never answered our email. Like, I feel really happy because her publisher sent me this only because I asked for it. But like a lot of, you know, we have such a great community with authors. Like Lisa Tadeo, who wrote Three Women, follows me and like comments on all my Instagrams. And, like, that's, like, the coolest thing ever. I mean, I comment on all of hers, too. It's not one-sided. But it's, like, it makes me sad if, like, people don't like us. Well, we can't. I really want Jasmine to come on our podcast. I, I do, too. But we can't be everyone's friend. Yeah. Um, I will tell you. So I am TBD on what I am currently reading. So I'm currently reading Whisper Network by Chandler Baker. And this is Reese Witherspoon's book club pick for this month. And I've heard a lot of buzz about it. And our friend Kate, who is not bookish Kate, who is a different Kate, said that it is the best book she's read this year. And I've heard so... She said that about Daisy Jones, though. And I thought Daisy Jones was medium. Well, maybe maybe she's not a reliable recommender. But I've heard a lot about this. I feel like I, feel like I also saw Hitha and Ashley Spivey talking about it. I don't know. Anyway... I am about 120 pages in. It's okay. Okay. I saw a lot of chatter online on some, I don't know, on some Facebook group post that people were saying it got better. So I'm going to stick with it. But so far, I'm not thrilled. Wait, can you talk about the Anna Delvey book? That is exactly what I was going to talk about. Did you get sent that or did you buy it? Um, So I saw it on Morgan, who is NYC Book Girl's Instagram yesterday. And I was seeing her later that night, and I was like, what is this? Where do I get this? Yeah. And she's like, I'll bring you a copy. Oh, I'm going to email her. I, I, it's, like, so silly. Like, So, I- Gallery Books is publishing this book called My Friend Anna, and it's about Anna Delvey. And Anna Delvey, if you somehow missed this, is my favorite, like, it's not true crime, but it's, like, my favorite scam story she's the girl who pretended to be a russian heiress and she was like running this check wire fraud there was this article about it in the cut that was like an expose that was fascinating but like she was getting away with it until she wasn't like she was in fashion circles and like in society like she was passing herself off as an heiress and like doing a good job but anyway we were both fascinated by her fascinated by this so this book is by Rachel Deloche Williams, who is the friend that she scammed and left with like a $60,000 tab in Morocco, like right before everything was crumbling and like she was about to get caught. So 
the story is called My Friend Anna, the True Story of a Fake Heiress, and it comes out on July 23rd. I'm so excited for this. I I need it for my yoga retreat. I I just emailed Morgan. I was like, hey, <laughs> the title of my email was because I'm shameless. <laughs> like I can wait till July 23rd or buy the book with money, but I want it. Well, oh. I think that this episode comes out on, on July 24th. So if oh, you are listening timing. to this, you can go buy it and not be a savage. Oh, and listen to our friend's podcast, Not Another True Crime Podcast. They do have a great episode about Anna Delvey. Oh, they do. And they cover some things later, too, because she's in Rikers right now and she's yeah. on trial and it's fascinating. It's so good. It's one of my favorite stories. Yes. Anyway. I could talk about Anna Delvey. Can we have an episode about her sometime? Yeah, I would love that. <laughs> like, if if you are not intrigued by any of those books, you why can... Why don't we make that our October book? Maybe. Yeah. I have a lot of ideas for our October book. Yeah. Um, We're getting so off track. So off track. If you are looking for a book to read and those did not intrigue you, you should read our July book club book. Which is amazing. It's called American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson. Wait, can we tell the secret? Yeah. She's going to be on the podcast. She's going to do the book episode with us. We just booked an interview with her. We're so psyched. It's going to be awesome. So she's joining us next week. So please read the book. It's fascinating it is part spy novel as the title would suggest but it also is much smarter and it has a lot to do with race and colonialism and loyalty loyalty it's very interesting it's a great book this was actually not even our pick it was your pick it was your pick we did um an audience choice book and we crowdsourced in our facebook group and this is what the group picked yeah so we're delivering. We're bringing the author. Yeah, we got you the author, guys. We got you the book you wanted and the author. So read the book. We will see you next week for book club. And I hope this episode was helpful. It was. I We've had two glasses of, you know, like a glass and a half of wine. I feel fired up. Me too. I just like hope that you guys take away from this, like, be a badass. Like, ask for money. Like, let us know if you don't use any of these tips. Oh, my God. Please do. I love it when people DM us and tell us that they like use like really took something away from what we said. I don't know. Like we're just sitting here in our sweatpants and we're like, I hope people liked it. I'm sitting in here in my sweatpants that I've been wearing two days in a row. I'm proud of you. I've been wearing these jean shorts two days in a row. Here we are. Changed my other other parts of my outfit. It's real glam. Yes. Very glamorous. Cheers, guys. Go get your money. Go get your money. Bye. Bye. Bye.